Uh, I'm just going to pray to ask uh, for the Holy Spirit to help us. I'm gonna, we need to get help. Uh, and mentioning that, that phrase, getting help, um, I just, just so you guys are aware, um, I, I'm saying this because a number of people have said that I should make this more known. I just recently wrote a short article for the church called How to Listen to a Sermon. Uh, and I just give you seven practical ways to listen to a sermon well. And one of those things is to, it's just called get help. It's the seven gets, getting seven things. And one of them is, is get help, and particularly help from the Holy Spirit. Because uh, unless the Holy Spirit uh, takes the words of the Scripture that I'm preaching from and opens your hearts to receive them well, nothing's going to happen uh, spiritually of any value. And so uh, would you please just join me in, in prayer as I ask for the Spirit's help. The one who gives thanksgiving as a sacrifice is the one who glorifies you, O oh God. We have so much to be thankful for. Not only life and breath and everything that, um, that we have, but most specifically your son Jesus. And then he's the anchor for our souls. He's my anchor right now. I can feel him as my anchor right now. Holy Spirit, help me to um, preach with joy, preach with clarity, power, uh, preach with a pastoral heart. Uh, pray for these people's hearts as well, that uh, you would make them receptive and open to all that you would have to say to us today. May you be honored and glorified in all of us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been in the book of James for a past a few weeks now, and it's been really, really um, just a delight. Uh, I am burning inside to preach James 4 to you guys today. Uh, and, and Pastor Mike just preached uh, just the, the last section in James chapter 3 on the difference between heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom and how one of the, the primary products of having heavenly wisdom given to us from the Spirit of God is it produces peace amongst a people. So James chapter 3, verse 18, it'll be up on the screen. It says, uh, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And what James, is, he sees, he's not, he's not going to move on to a completely new topic, leaving that one. He's, saying, okay, I'm not, he's not saying, okay, I'm done with that, now we're talking about a new thing. He's actually setting himself up to address an issue in these people that's disrupting the peace that is meant to be produced by heavenly wisdom. And so he sees dysfunction, he sees disorder, specifically in the, the, uh, the specific way it's being expressed is in conflict, arguing, um, debating, in quarreling and warring amongst these people. And um, so if you look at first verse 1, the first verse 1, he asks a question. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And then in verse 2, he even talks about how there's murder in the community. And I don't think he's talking about literal murder. Uh, James is kind of a, 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 an expansion of, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus taught. And Jesus talked about how hate can actually be a form of murder. So I don't think he's talking about literal murder here. He's more talking about hatred in the heart. And even down in verses 11 through 12 uh, today, he talks about how there's slander happening. People are speaking evil of each other. People are judging each other. And so there's lots of disorder and dysfunction in, this, in these people. Now before I, I kind of move on uh, and go a little bit deeper, I, th I think this, this very easily applies to us. 
I mean, you can just ask yourself, where, where is their conflict? Where is their quarreling? Where is their, uh, where is there a sense of tension between people, you and someone else in your life? I mean, what was the last quarrel? What was the last fight that you just got? A lot of you is probably on your way to church today with your spouse who's trying to get your kids into the car. And so this, this exposes a lot in us. Maybe is it, is it in your family? Is it with a parent? Is it with a child? Is it with uh, a sibling? Uh, is it with a coach? Is it with a, a teammate, a classmate? Is it with a, a pastor? Is it with a, a leader that you used to think you, should, you could trust, but now you can't trust anymore? Or maybe it's with a coworker, maybe it's with a boss. Right, this, this exposes a lot in us. It's very easy to see that this is very relevant to us today. And James, like a good pastor, he does not immediately jump to practical things. He does not immediately say, here are three tips for how you can resolve quarrels and conflict in your life. He does not immediately jump to seven cute little principles for, to instill peace in your relationships and your marriage. He's a pastor. He asked, notice, he even asked them a question. He's not preaching at them, he's pastoring them. And the reason why he's asking a question is because he's trying to draw out their hearts. He's not just dealing with, he's not just addressing the superficial issue. He's trying to get underneath what's at the heart of the matter. He says, what causes quarrels? What causes fights? The cause is the thing underneath that's producing something. So... Um, I want you to think about something. How would you answer James's question? Pretend James is sitting down with you at Starbucks, and you're like, oh my gosh, this, this person's driving me crazy. I've got this conflict in my wife, my boss, my spouse, my brother, my sister, my whatever. I've got so much stress in my life. This thing is this. And, and we're talking about all these things on the outside, and James is going, I know. I know. I hear you. That stuff is legit. At times, there are things that create disorder and dysfunction in our lives that are outside of us. But James is going, just hold on a second. Before we get there, let's, let's get underneath. Let's deal with what's going on in your heart. James would say to you, yes, there may be stress, but that's not the main problem. Yes, people might be not giving you the respect that you want, but that's not the main problem. This person might be speaking to you away or treating you a certain way that's driving you crazy, but at the end of the day, putting those things aside, there's something going on deeper. And James would say to you, and this is my main point today, disordered life is the result of disordered loves. There's a clever saying by a, a young preacher named Kevin DeYoung. He said, preaching makes bad art, and art makes bad preaching. Art is meant to make you go, hmm, what's he saying? What's the, I'm, this is kind of what I get out of it. I'm not really sure here. Preaching is meant to make you go, this is exactly what I'm saying. Don't get it twisted. So when, someone, when you go home today and someone says, what was the sermon about? You're going to say this. Disordered life is the result of disordered loves. He goes on to say, verse, second half of verse 1, 
He answers his question with a question. So what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? See where he's going? He's going on the inside, within you. Let's talk about you. And he says, passions. I don't like this translation. There might be a footnote on your Bible, and you go down to the bottom. The literal translation is pleasures. Your pleasures are at war within you. The Greek word, I just love this. The Greek word is hedone. Where do we get that from? Hedonism. Hedonism is the pursuit of of pleasure. It's a life devoted to pleasure. And and James is saying, the reason that you have all this conflict, all this dysfunction, all this disorder, chaos in your life, you have disorder inside of your heart, loves. You have disorder in what your heart is trying to find pleasure in. But what is it? What is it about? What is it about pleasures in my heart that are disordered and off that would cause conflict? How does that relate to the disorder in my life? Notice what he says in verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. I want you to notice something. James is going from the internal problem to the external problem. He's going from the dysfunction on the inside to the dysfunction on the outside. From the disorder within to the disorder without. So watch. Inside, you desire and do not have. Outside, so you murder. Inside, you covet and cannot obtain. Outside, so you fight and quarrel. The reason why you have the disorder on the outside in your life is the disorder on the inside of your loves. Now I need to just talk a little moment briefly about what disordered love is. This, this idea, this concept of disordered love is a biblical idea. But the actual term came from St. Augustine back in the 4th century. And it's very simple. It's very simple. God has created you and me with hearts that have the capacity to experience pleasure. They crave, they want, they desire, they long for, and they love And our hearts can have, they can experience different levels of intensity of love and passion and joy and pleasure. But, and this is huge, God has designed your life and my life to work best whenever we love the right things with the right intensity. Whenever we find pleasure in good things with the right and appropriate amount of pleasure. And as soon as those things become off, that's when life gets out of control. Now, if you're a little bit like, okay, you're kind of in the clouds, Pastor. Like, can you kind of get on the ground? Yes. I'm going to take four things in my life. My marriage, my children, other people, and work. Those are four things. Four good things in my life. God has designed my life to work best For me to find most love and most joy and most pleasure in my wife. Just under that, my children. Just under that, other people. And just under that, my work. And the more pleasure I find in one of those things, the higher it moves on the order. You guys with me? 
Okay. The less pleasure I have in something, the lower it moves on the totem pole, you might say. The priorities are determined not by choice, but by what you cherish. Now, what happens whenever I find more pleasure in my work than in my family? My work moves to the top, and now my wife and my children feel neglected, and that's when the conflict comes, and that's when everything becomes disordered. I, for time's sake, I'm not going to go, you could, I would bet that every one of you could apply this very easily to your own lives. The main reason there is disorder in your life is because there's disorder in your loves. Now watch this, though. Whenever my disordered loves do not get satisfied, I become frustrated, bitter, annoyed, irritable, anxious, and discontent. Can I give you a helpful definition of discontentment? I thought of it this week, and I was like, huh, that's pretty good. (laughs) Someone might have already thought of it, but here's, here's my definition of discontentment. It's when your internal demands are greater than your external supply. Your demands, your desires, what you want is bigger, deeper, wider, longer, larger than what stuff on the outside in your life is actually supplying to you. And when you subtract those, you get a deficit. That deficit is why you feel discontent. That deficit is what is creating the frustration, the bitterness, the anger, the anxious, the anxiety, the depression maybe. The fundamental root of discontentment is that. And when, I, and when my disordered loves are not satisfied, everyone and everything becomes an enemy and an obstacle to my joy and my pleasure. I may get very passionate today because this is very uh, personal. This this has convicted me a lot. What's amazing, though, is that you don't even have to be a Christian to agree with this. I was reading an article after I came up with my little point to, you know, disordered loves or disordered life results in the result of disordered loves. I found this in an article, and I was like, that's amazing. Listen to this. Today's psychotherapist would call disordered love the repeated, desperate attempt to achieve happiness by satisfying all desires in objects that cannot satisfy them. And the lifestyle that results would be termed dysfunctional. I would just add disordered. So let me just be very another... Here's how this expresses itself in my life, a common way. And my wife would attest to this. So I have a long day at work, working at the church, meeting with people. You just have a a bunch of counseling sessions with some really grievous things that just burden you. And you come home, and you're almost home, and you realize, I've got growth group tonight. (laughs) And so I've only got like two hours of like to time to like rest and relax. You know what the top, you know what my top, my top love in that moment is? I want to go sit on the couch and just watch Netflix or something. 
So my supreme object of possible pleasure is my comfort. And when I walk through the doors, you know who becomes an enemy and an obstacle to my joy? It's my wife and my two little girls. And they bear the brunt. Dads, I'm going to... Do you realize the power that you hold in your hand for the happiness and the flourishing of your home? The ethos of my family rises and falls by how daddy walks to the door. If you are not disgusted with your own heart as I am yet, (laughs) you guys still with me? If you are not, just, just get ready because it's going to get worse. <laughs> James is going to say that when that happens, here's what, here's what Christians like to do. We will then go one step further so our loves get disordered, our lives get disordered, and then we will go to God and ask him to make our lives ordered. He becomes a servant to our desires. Watch this. Watch. Verse 2. Second half of verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. You don't even pray. But when you do pray, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That word passions, same Greek word, hedone. Your pleasures are all out of whack. So that results in this this disordered life. Then you run to God and you say, hey God, fix this thing. Despite the fact that the reason I have a disordered life is because of my disordered loves. So we will go to God to have him reorder our disordered lives, but we will not have him reorder our disordered loves. We'll say, don't touch my heart, but you can touch my life. Just, just arrange, just fix this thing here, put this, make my wife like that, make my kids like that, just make that, and then I'll be happy. but it's never going to work like that because we want the best of both worlds. We want the disordered loves with the ordered life and we'll even use God to make it happen. But God is never, he's not going to be treated like that. That's why it says, you ask and do not receive. Because like, (laughs) I'm not here to serve you in your your pleasures and your passions for for the, the things of the world. The implications of this for your own prayer life are massive, but it's a whole nother sermon. Now James is going to be, he's going to get to the very rock bottom of the issue. He's getting to the, now he's going to get to the rock bottom issue. Look what he says in verse 4. You adulterous people. The literal translation is you adulteresses. You might have a footnote in your Bible and it'll say at the bottom. Why that's interesting is because adulteresses is when you, you speak to a woman. But there's men and women in the church. So the guys are going, what's up with that? Like, <laughs> talking, about, talking about my wife, I'm, you're talking, I'm a guy, like what's, what's up with that? But if you remember, he's talking to Jewish people. So they know their Old Testament. And they know that God throughout the Old Testament has re- always referred, not always, but most of the time, a lot of times refers to his relationship with his people as a husband and a wife. Isaiah 54, verse 5. 
For your maker is your husband. Your husband, the Lord of hosts, is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth is he called. But what are they doing that would caricaturize themselves as adulteresses? And it has to do with the way that they're praying. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to, to spend it on your pleasures, you adulteresses. James is equating these people. This may sound harsh, but it's James talking here, not me. He's equating these people with a woman who finds very little pleasure in her husband, goes over here and begins to find pleasure in other men. She wants to go on a weekend getaway, doesn't have enough money, so she gets frustrated. So she goes back to her husband and says, can I please have $1,000? I'd like to go on a weekend getaway. This is what these people are doing. This is what, whenever we treat God like that, that is what James is saying we are equated to. James points out a very, very hard line here. Who is this person that they're flirting with, though? Second half of verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. They are flirting with the world and all it has to offer. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions, as 1 John chapter 2 talks about. And James draws an extremely hard line here. He, he goes into the sand and he draws a line and he says, if you love the world, you hate God. If you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. Friendship with the world, enmity with God. Friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now I can imagine, and the reason why I can imagine this is because I've had on two occasions people say to me this. What are you talking about? I don't hate God. I mean, I, I just don't really feel anything towards him, but I mean, I don't hate God. What are you talking about? Why, why is God getting so angry with me? Why would he ever judge me? Because, I mean, I don't hate him. I just feel nothing. My response is all, because this has happened to me. This happened one time when I was teaching at, at school. A student said it, and one time someone said it to me after a sermon. And this is my response every time. That's like me saying, I don't hate my wife. I just feel nothing towards her. And I just, I just kind of like uh, flirting with these other cute girls over here. I don't understand why my wife would be so angry at that. I don't understand why she would contemplate ever divorcing me. James draws a very hard line. So when he says, if you love the world, you hate God. If you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. He means what he says. Please do not try to soften his words. We try to soften it and say, well, you know, it's not really hate. Uh. It's a very hard word. So, your biggest problem, my biggest problem, is not the disordered life. It's the disordered loves. Because the disordered loves makes you an enemy of God. 
It treats God like an adulteress treats her husband. It makes God into a cuckold. That's just a man whose wife has cheated on him. And this explains why God is justified in feeling jealous. Look at verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? What is God jealous for? What's he jealous for? Exodus 34, 14. You shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. God is jealous for your love and worship of his glory. God is passionate about the praise, adoration, and enjoyment of his own majesty and magnificence. He is jealous for that from us. Now, I could imagine people in here thinking, that's a little bit weird. And I totally understand it. It's it's one of the reasons why C.S. Lewis was hesitant about becoming a Christian. It actually caused Oprah Winfrey to leave Christianity. But the only reason it sounds strange that God will be jealous for my worship and praise and love is because you don't realize this. Hedonism, I'm saying hedonism because James uses the word hedone, right? You with me there? Okay. Hedonism and God's glory are a perfect match made in heaven. I'll put it to you another way. My passion for pleasure Every single one of us in here is passionate for your own pleasure. We are zealous to find joy. It's why everyone continues to live that they might find more pleasure. My passion for pleasure and God's passion to be praised are the same passion. They're the same passion. Think about it in the disordered loves thing that I told you guys, the, my wife, children, other people, work. The more pleasure that I find in one of those things, the higher they move on the list. The less pleasure I find in something, the lower they move on the list. Thus, the only way that I could ever glorify God is if I find him as my supreme, ultimate, most exquisite pleasure to my soul. If that is empty, if that is gone, that how could, how could you possibly, how could I possibly glorify God if I find very little pleasure in him? You cannot glorify, you cannot honor what you find very little pleasure in. Thus, when God says, Stop flirting with the world and praise me. It's as if he's saying to you, stop pursuing limited joy in the world and pursue unlimited joy in me. Stop seeking measured pleasure in the things of the world and pursue, seek after the pleasure you can't measure in my son Jesus Christ. 
that little phrase, Jesus, pleasure you can't measure, I've, I think I've, I've, I'm, I'm trying to get a copyright on it because I, I, I've given a message a couple times called Jesus, pleasure you can't measure. I actually wrote a poem on it because <laughs> I'm so excited about it. <laughs> His pleasure you can't measure. His satisfaction never losing its traction. His greatest enjoyment that never goes on unemployment. His fire-like fascination that results in endless celebration. I'm going to stop. Um, <laughs> when God says, I want your worship, give it to me. He's saying, I want you to be so happy. Stop being an unfulfilled hedonist and be a fulfilled Christian hedonist. To use the term coined by John Piper. And I know some of you guys know I like John Piper. Uh, to be honest, I could, I could care less if he taught it. I don't care if Bozo the Clown taught Christian hedonism. I believe it, and I am a Christian hedonism because it's, it's biblical and it's true. I, I am passionate and zealous and on a mission in this life to find as much possible pleasure as possible in Jesus Christ. Because only when that happens does he look good. And it's, when you realize this, it's all over the Bible. Psalm 63. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate upon you in the watches of the night. Psalm 1611. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 43. I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding Joy. Psalm, I wrote it down here, 36. You give us drink, O God, from the river of your delights. The audacity of David to say that God is a river of delights. That when I come here on Sundays, I'm sitting at the mouth of a, of a river and I'm like, keep the drinks coming, Lord. You see, because the reason why, the reason why we, we go to things like alcohol, not, it's not sinful to, to drink alcohol, it's not sinful, but there, there's, you have to enjoy it in limitation. Temperance. Temperance is a virtue in the world. Indulgence is a vice. I was walking to the mall the other day and I saw an advertisement, indulge every craving. I was like, yes, in Jesus Christ I will. It was like a, it was a dumb chocolate thing, and a girl was like, yeah, I was like, that's so stupid. Like, <laughs> but with God, this is this is gonna be a cat, this might be a category shift for some of you. With God, temperance is a vice. And indulgence is a virtue. Indulge. It is only when I continue to why do you think Jesus said? Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Why would he talk like that? Because he's saying, I'm the one source that you can indulge in as much as possible. And it is never wrong. It is in fact right. It is in fact fulfilling your purpose for existence. 
Now, um, I'm going to try to start landing the plane now. So in summary, what causes quarrels, what causes fights among you? You're experiencing disorder and discontentment and dysfunction in your life because you have disorder, discontentment, dysfunction in what your heart loves and what it takes pleasure in. You are merely a hedonist. You are not a Christian hedonist. Your pleasures are at war within you because you've sought them in everywhere else except for Jesus Christ. And you even go to the extent of asking God to fix your life to satisfy your disordered pleasures. And that's why there's disorder and chaos and conflict in your life. Because if I'm satisfying, if I, have, if I have everything I need in Jesus, I'm the freest, happiest, most joyful, generous, gracious man I could possibly be. So, some of you guys might be thinking like, okay, I get it. All right, I got it. You're, whew, James is hitting me hard. Okay, now what do I do? Like, how do I, because here's the problem. Our, our loves are out of order. So the last thing we're going to ask today is how do we have our loves reordered? And I'm going to give you the answer in a sentence and I'm going to show you from the Bible. Because who cares what I say if it's not actually in the Bible? Here's the answer to the question. How do you have your loves reordered then? Let the beauty of the gospel lead you into humble repentance. Let the beauty of the gospel lead you into humble repentance. You see, when, when a man has been cheated on by his wife the natural response is to put up walls and to withhold his love and to wait until the woman can prove herself to be trustworthy and then he might slowly begin to drop the walls and give his love once again. And the reason why I'm talking about this is because James has talked about how we can make God and we can commit adultery on God. A man, if a man responds like that, that's, that's, in a sense, that's just. She's, she's lost the right to be trusted. But praise God, <laughs> he's not like us. Look at verse 6. But God gives more grace. That's the, that's the turning point, right? James is going, he's going real low, you adulteresses. Friendship with the world, enemy of God. Where sin abounded, Grace abounded all the more. I mean, when I was studying, I was asking myself, more grace than what, James? I think that's the point. Just more. More than all your sin. More than all your spiritual adultery. More than all your disordered loves. More than all of it. But how did God, how did God show grace to people like this? How does he show grace like, to people like this? You see, God did not withhold his love. In fact, he did not withhold his only son. He gave his son, Jesus Christ, who broke through the walls, right? The walls were up because of our spiritual adultery. He broke them down with Jesus Christ. And he came into the world and he exposed his son to mockery, shame, abuse, sin, condemnation, judgment and he took it all for his faithless or his unfaithful bride there's a law in the old testament that said if a woman or a man were caught in adultery they take that person put him in the middle of the congregation and they stone him to death and what the gospel says is 
Jesus did not say, I'm throwing the first stone. Who's throwing it with me? He put his stone down. He took his wife and he said, sit over here, sweetie. And he stood right in the middle. And he said, throw the rocks at me. Throw the rocks at me. Kill me instead. Take, my, take her adultery, attribute it to my account, and I'll take it. And when the wife, when the unfaithful wife sees that kind of love, it rivets her love again. It snaps the disordered love back into order. It captivates her heart once again. This is how you have your disordered loves reordered. You see the beauty of the gospel. When you see what Christ did for you, when you see how he willingly went to the cross with joy out of love for you, it, it captivates your soul. It ravishes your soul. And you say, all I have, all I have is Christ. He's my all. He's my everything. He gave it all. He deserves all my love and praise. But you have to let the beauty of the gospel lead you into humble repentance. Humble repentance. And there's a lot more verses here, and I wish I could go a little bit deeper, but I'm going to have to be a little more brief. Verse 6, second half, verse 6. Therefore, God gives more grace, therefore. So because of the beauty of God's grace, humble. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. Here's the repentance part. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. For what? Your sin. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. It's pretty clear. The beauty of the gospel leads you into humble repentance. Sorrow for your sin, not because it makes you feel guilty because you've offended God. And you're coming to him pleading for grace. Now there's one little quick line in here. He kind of throws in this little phrase here, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Where did that come from? It kind of seems like, what? Devil, what? And I think this is what it is. The devil does not care if you pray as long as you're praying like an adulteress. What the devil wants when you're praying, he, wants to, he tries to convince you that God's stuff is more satisfying than God. And so the... the the meat and potatoes of your prayer is praying for stuff. I'm not saying that praying for stuff is bad. I'm saying if that's all you pray for, it could reveal something. When's the last time you went to prayer in God? When's the last time you drew near to God? Why? Because you knew he would draw near to you. When's the last time you went to God in prayer? Just 
just to enjoy him. Just to sit under. Therefore, since we've been justified by grace, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. When's the last time you just prayed to God to just sit in this dome of grace and just enjoy him? That's how, that's how Christian hedonists pray. Their primary goal of prayer is to have more of God. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and everything else. Stop worrying about that. Have the king of kings. Now, um, we're going to land a plane here. Verses 11 through 12. So James begins on the, super, on, the, on the surface level. Why do you fight and quarrel? And then he goes deep. Adultery, friendship with the world. And then he shows them the gospel. And then he comes back to the original issue. Conflict, disorder amongst the people. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges a brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. It's pride. Putting yourself above the law. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you? That question is like, who are you is like uh, you're being proud again. Who are you? Who do you think you are to judge your neighbor? So James wraps it up by going back to the original issue of disorder in the life of the church and how it is linked to a refusal to humble themselves under God's grace. Now, I didn't really know how to end this sermon. Um, so here's how I'm going to end it. There are certain things that you read in like, Peep, like old like Puritans, like how they talked about God, you're like, what? I don't, I have no idea what that experience is like. So I came across a guy named Thomas Watson. Listen to this quote. I read this and I was like, I'm sorry. What is that experience? He's going to use this phrase, chief good. The chief good is Christ. Okay? The chief good must ravish the soul with pleasure. There must be in it, that is Christ, the chief good, there must be in it rapturous delight and quintessence of joy. I read that and I was like, I have no idea what that is. But I want to know it. Christ was crucified to give you that. Christ went to the cross and rose from the dead so that you could have that in him. So we're going to do two more things in this service. We're about to take the Lord's Supper, and we're going to sing two songs. So my encouragement to you is when we take the Lord's Supper, as you're taking it, you're taking the cracker and the juice. Christ's body was broken and his veins were opened so that you could have the chief good. So when you're coming to the table, you're saying, I need his broken body and shed blood to have Christ again. And we're going to sing two more songs. The first one is I Surrender All. Maybe as you're singing that, maybe think about how you need to just surrender some things. 
I've been holding on to some things too tightly. And I just need to let him go. Satan's going to tell you, no, 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 keep it. Hold on tight. If you let it go, God's holding out on you. If you let go, you're going to lose pleasure. And God's going, you kidding me? Pleasure's forevermore, man. Let it go. And we're going to sing, all I have is Christ's last song. I mean, that's obvious. I mean, that's just, when you're singing it, all I have is Christ. All I have is Christ. So I'm going to pray. And when I finish praying, uh, there will be a moment of silence, and you guys can come to the table whenever you feel led. If you're not a Christian, uh, we'd ask you not come to the table and maybe just consider Christ. We want you to have Christ. Um, and then after that, we'll, we'll continue in song. Let me pray. Out of your immeasurable grace, even though we were like an unfaithful bride, you came after us. Rather than give us justice, you gave us grace in Jesus. You paid all our debts. You took all our punishment. You took all our sin so that we could have free access, unlimited access to the quintessence of joy, your son Jesus forever. We ask Holy Spirit that you would Maybe there are some people in here who have never experienced pleasure in Christ that you would give them that. You put taste buds on their souls and they would say, what is that? Why would I ever go back to that sin when I have Jesus? Thank you for this harsh but good word from James. We have been pastored well by him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.